One of the simplest ways to view your Bible is as a book of promises, a book of things that are to come true. Now, most people don't actually view their Bible in that way. They view it as maybe a history book or a book of laws, a book of do's and don'ts. Some people even view it as a work of fiction. But for thousands of years, people have realized that this is the place that God has revealed himself to humanity. For thousands of years, people have trusted that contained within these pages are the very words of God. Uh, For thousands of years, people have viewed this as a blueprint to how God has designed the world to work and how if you'll come underneath those things, you'll live a more fulfilled life. They've understood it that way uh, because that's actually what God has promised in it. Uh, Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the help me full. We believe that Jesus is the one who brings fullness of life. Now the question before us today is, if that's true, fullness of life, then how come so few people find it? How come within the United States specifically, we rank first per capita in anxiety and depression over all the other countries in the world? When in the same breath, we're first in uh, standard of living and wealth. I thought money was supposed to bring happiness. Or let me ask you, how come we live in the most technologically advanced age in the history of the world? We're more connected now than ever. And we also rank in the top 10 in terms of loneliness. I would argue for thousands of years, people, has, people have also misinterpreted this book. They haven't trusted its promises, either intentionally or unintentionally. Therefore, the result hasn't been fullness of life. It's been emptiness. Uh, people go from one thing to the next, hoping to find something that will satisfy them. You should know the first part of John 10.10, where I put the periods. Uh, the thief's purpose is to come and kill and steal and destroy. And that's when Jesus says, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. So a couple weeks ago, we started a series of talks called 2020 Vision because you need to start clearly seeing 2020 style, the promises that God has made for you. In the year 2020, you need to fully understand that you matter to God and that fullness of life is planned for you. God is not trying to keep anything for you. It's the thief who's come to steal your joy and, and kill your purpose and destroy your destiny. And hear me, he does that with good things and bad things. Most people think the devil is trying to get them to be bad when the reality is that he doesn't need you bad. You know, they think that he's trying to get them to be addicted and start embezzling money and do all kinds of evil things and punch kittens. Uh, but this is, that's not the devil's plan. He doesn't need you bad. He needs you busy. The devil needs you hectic. He needs you living a life of inefficiency. And moreover, the devil needs you unavailable. The devil doesn't care if you're a Christian. So long as you're an unproductive one, 
He'll gladly trade you having a relationship with God to, uh, if you'll just toil your life away. This is my entire point last week. That there are four distinct promises that God has made. I can show them to you in dozens and dozens of places throughout your Bible. But most Christians only live out the first two promises. Most Christians never get to see promise three and four. They're stuck between promises. This is a big deal because when you're stuck, you're safe. You're not a threat to enemies. You're not a world changer. Which, that's actually what God has planned for your life. That's what God has created you to be. You matter. You're important. You're not one in a million. You're one of a kind. So let me remind you of the four promises. Again, I could have taken you to any book in the Bible and likely showed you any one of these promises. But uh, these weeks together, we've been looking at the promises in Exodus chapter 6 because that's the first time that all four are recorded together. And uh, also, by way of reminder, you should know that uh, before Exodus chapter 6, there's millions of people in slavery. Uh, God has promised these people, creatively named the Israelites, because their founding father, one of them, was named Israel. Uh, But God has promised them land and blessing. Uh, The problem is they're in slavery to the most powerful uh, country and kingdom in the world. How are you going to be a blessing to anybody around you when you're in slavery? And so God sends Moses to speak these words. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In case you're unfamiliar, that's exactly what happens. God rescues these people from slavery with mighty acts of judgment. And for thousands of years, let that sink in, every year for the past 3,000 years, Jews have been gathering to celebrate this moment where God showed up and rescued His people. They call it the Passover. I should also point out that within this Passover celebration, There are 14 steps that they follow in order. It's called the Passover Seder, which simply means order. 14 steps that they've done every year for 3,000 years. Within these 14 steps, they'll drink a cup of wine to mirror these four I will promises. There's four different cups of wine, each for one of these uh, four promises that I'm arguing still apply to you today. Okay, how so? You might want to jot these down. These are the four promises that God has made right here in Exodus 6. Four I will promises of God. The first promise is of salvation. I will rescue you. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will save you out of slavery. This is the first promise that God makes. How does that apply to you? Because the Bible says that if you've ever committed sin, then you're a slave to sin. And if you can be honest with yourself, I think you can point to an area in your life where you've fallen short and you're not super awesome, which is what sin means. It means to fall short. It's an archery term. 
And so you can recognize that you are, in fact, a sinner and therefore a slave to sin. So this is a big deal for you to understand because God doesn't need anything from you to rescue you out of slavery. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out from under the burdens of sin. Your rescue has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what Jesus did for you. God sent Moses to free his people back then. God sends Jesus to free his people today. All it takes from you is belief in Jesus, which is why promise number two is an entirely different promise. It's not about salvation. It's about freedom. God says, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Well, that sounds a bit weird. How do you deliver somebody from slavery when you've already rescued them from slavery? Aren't they already free? Well, that was what we talked about last week, that uh, we got you out of the sin. Now we got to get the sin out of you. We got uh, got you out of the slavery in Egypt, but you're still living like... Egyptians, where promise one has nothing to do with you, God rescues you. Promise two has almost everything to do with you. You start living in response to what God has done. Now, Philippians 2 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is actually who comes into your life and gives you the desire and the power to uh, follow through on that sort of life. But what we see uh, within culture is that the vast majority of Christians never make it past this promise. 87% is the number that they've come up with. 87% of Christians have no idea what their spiritual gift is, which means 87% of Christians uh, are not fitting into the family of God. They're never living their purpose, which is why most people never see promise number three. They spend their life striving to live a good life, doing what they feel like God is uh, asking them to do, and they never make an eternal difference. It's not God's best for you. That's why promise number three is about restoration. That's what we're going to talk about uh, today. The, the verse is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Before we talk about that, sneak peek, spoiler alert. Next week, we're going to talk about the promise of fulfillment. The Jews call it the cup of praise. How many of y'all know after four cups of wine, you're praising somebody. You know what I'm talking about? Like That's aptly titled, if anything is ever said, but uh, that's promise number four. God says, I will take you to be my people, and then I will be your God. You shall know, circle star, underline, highlight, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That's important because apparently, if you're not living these four verses, you can't know that he is the Lord your God. So let's try about promise number three. Moses writes, God tells him, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. The first thing that we should probably do is define our terms. What does redeem even mean? It seems like a Christian word. We have no idea what it is. According to the kind folks down at Merriam-Webster, it can mean a couple different things if you look it up in your dictionary. First of all, it can mean to buy back or repurchase. I like that definition to repurchase because all of us end up being owned by something. Could be your job. It could be a relationship. It could be debt. But we're a slave to something. And God comes in and says, nope, not anymore. I'm going to buy you back out of that. Last year I had the opportunity to go to Bolivia 
with an organization called Compassion International, and we got to explore some of the different things that they're doing and some church planting things in Bolivia. But on one of our stops, we got to uh, spend some time in the center town square, uh, the market. There's a huge market set up, and we could go in and, and, and buy some things and whatever. And our translator, before we set out on this little expedition, they said, never pay full price. That the merchants expect you to haggle with them and barter with them as part of the fun of buying things, he said. And uh, they've priced things, you know, accordingly. Uh, which I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at that. Okay? Here in America, I will never pay full price for anything. But if I'm in another country, you know, I don't want to be the arrogant American, you know, who shows up and won't pay 45 cents for a handmade quilt, you know, that somebody spent five years knitting together and you're like I can't no 45 cents is too much for that. I don't want to be that guy okay uh, but what's so compelling to me is that's kind of how things work with God he comes into the flea market and he sees you there all jacked up all bound up in chains a, a, you know a slave in your own right looking all homely and he says to the guy how much you want for that one and the guy's like oh you, you don't want that one and Jesus is like, no, really, I do. How much do you want for that? And the slave owner says, well, they may not look like much, but that's going to cost you everything, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't barter. Jesus doesn't try and you know, drill down on the price. Jesus says, deal. I'm going to give up everything I have, and I'm going to pay what they're worth, which is everything. You're worth it. Everything. To Jesus. Now, as nice as that is, I don't think that's the best definition for what God has promised us here in promise number three. Because uh, he's already bought us back. Remember? That was promise number one. I will buy you out of slavery. I will rescue you. So, which is why we need to talk about the ever, other definition M-Dub gives us. If you would look up uh, redeem in your dictionary, which none of you will, because nobody even owns a dictionary anymore. You would say on your phone, hey Siri, what's the definition? Uh, Y'all remember when at school, you'd ask something, the teacher would be like, look it up in the dictionary. Or your mom would be like, look it up in the dictionary. I couldn't wait to be a parent and I could be like, look it up in the dictionary, you little jerk. And they're like, you can't, it, I have no idea what a dictionary is. It's like, the, hey Siri. Nonetheless, you know, I just said, hey, Siri, and now my iPad went to Siri. No, I don't want you right now. If you would say, hey, Alexa, <laughs> what's redeem mean? She'd give you this definition, to repair or to restore. This is what you need to think about. Because that original word in the Hebrew for redeem, it literally translates to restore back to your original purpose. That is to say, how you're made points to what you're supposed to do. Your design reveals your destiny. God had a job in mind, so he made you, not the other way around. God's not up in heaven going, hmm, what should I do with this one? You know, I don't have a lot going for them. Uh, no, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You are God's 1967 fastback Mustang with pony interior waiting to be restored and stolen by Nicolas Cage in 60 seconds or whatever. And might be not a good example. But 
God's ready to restore you to your original purpose. That's what it means to be redeemed. Now looking back on our text, why does God have to use an outstretched arm to redeem you? Answer, because you're only 50% of the way there, right? You're only in promise two of four. You're stuck between promises. So God has to reach down and pull you out the rest of the way. My all-time favorite verse. Matter of fact, why we named New Anthem, New Anthem. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair with His outstretched arm, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a new anthem of praise to our God. Many will see what He has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Because of what He did for me. See, what God did in you is not just for you. What, what God is extending His arm and pulling you up, what that's for, it's not just for you. It's for all the people around you. That's what I meant when I said when you start living promises 3 and 4, you start changing the world. When you you live your purpose, it introduces people to God and their purpose. They will be amazed. They'll start trusting the Lord. And then this whole cycle is going to repeat itself, but it can't when you're stuck between promises. Somewhat ironic that, that this redeem is what Moses gets to talk about because this is exactly what happened with him. God shows up to Moses in the form of a burning bush and he leads him back to Egypt. You've seen the movie, Let My People Go. And so we probably don't need to spend a whole bunch of time on that. But Moses is an interesting case study for this idea of redemption because he grew up as a prince. He was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, raised in the course of the wealthiest and mightiest kingdom on the planet of that time. This is important because Moses had access to education and resources and written histories. Don't know what you know about the Egyptians, but they're pretty renowned for their preservation of things, right? And so the reason Moses could write the first five books of the Bible and the reason we can talk about, uh, that he can talk about Abraham and Isaac and Joseph was because he had access to everything those men had ever written or talked about. Uh, he, he had, uh, it had all been cataloged before him because the Egyptians, Joseph became governor and he's keeping everything in some pyramid somewhere and like knew that this was going to become important. And one day Moses learns about his heritage and how his mom and dad were actually Jews of the tribe of Levi, which means he needed to become a priest. But because Pharaoh uh, wrote a law that said they needed to kill every single male Jew, he gets adopted uh, by the Pharaoh's daughter. Suddenly, all the names and genealogies that he's reading that were written down for him, suddenly all those things matter. Suddenly that's his people. Imagine how you'd feel if all of a sudden this news came to you. That uh, your people are getting killed by the guy that you're adopted by. You'd likely be angry and confused like Moses was. Not saying you'd kill anybody, but that's what Moses decided to do. An Egyptian's harming an Israelite slave, and he turns from the adopted son of the greatest and richest and most powerful man on the planet to spending the next 40 years as a shepherd 
He wants from sleeping in a palace to sleeping in a pasture. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Things escalated quickly. Now, according to Exodus chapter 2, Pharaoh finds out about Moses' little homicide and says, well, Moses needs to die. So he's not super excited about that whole thing. Moses takes off 285 miles to the east, up and around the Red Sea. Think about that for a little bit. Which 285 miles is a little bit of a jaunt. And so Moses decides that he's thirsty and sits down by a well to get a drink. Seven daughters of the priest of Midian show up at this same well to water their sheep. However, some evil shepherds show up. This well is becoming a little crowded. They try and run off these daughters and say, no, you can't get water here. Uh, Moses springs into action. He's already killed one man. You know, he's essentially Chuck Norris at this point. And so... Moses, Texas Ranger, shows up and the eyes of Moses are upon you. And he runs off these little shepherds. And then Jethro, uh, I know this sounds crazy, it's some Beverly Hillbillies character. Uh, Jethro, who's the girl's dad, the, the priest of Midian, he wants to reward Moses. He finds out about him saving the day and says, here, take this one, Zipporah, as your wife. Like, What? Like, how about 20 bucks, Jethro? You know, I mean, how are you going to go from uh, this to take take this? She, I don't know. And Moses gets a wife. Now, you know the story from there, okay? It goes plagues, Passover, parting of the Red Sea, and scene, okay? Exodus 2 through 15, you're welcome. I bring all of this to your attention, and, and here's what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning chatting about. You might want to jot this down. There's a difference between what you have the capacity to do and what you have the calling to do. A difference between your capacity, what you're able to comprehend to do, and what you have the calling to do. Moses was fully capable. He had the complete capacity to be a shepherd, but that wasn't his calling. Sure, he could have raised his family in Midian, could have went to his father-in-law's church for all his days and lived in complete anonymity and he could have died a happy man which listen so could you a lot of people do there's nothing that says you have to discover your life purpose and fulfill your calling there's nothing that says uh, you have to seek out this discovery process you can still go to heaven living promise number two go to heaven stuck between promises No spiritual reason that you can't just settle for the grind, work a job, next 50 years, then retire. Why not? Oh, because there's a difference between your capacity and your calling. Another real-life example maybe will be helpful. Many people know that on December 17, 1903, Wilbur and Orville Wright changed history by being the first men to pilot an aircraft that was heavier than air. What most people don't know is that Samuel Pierpoint Langley was given uh, $50,000 by Andrew Carnegie and Alexander Graham Bell, which back then $50,000 might have, you know, have been an infinity, okay? He was given a gazillion dollars, and they said, hey, find whoever you can. You're a mathematician, you're an astronomer, you're an inventor. Find whoever else you can that's like you. Figure out how to build an airplane, So Langley has the venerable dream team of talent, unlimited funds. In his mind, he writes about this in a journal, how famous he's going to be. He hires some 
uh, newspaper people to follow him around, journalists to track everything he's doing because he's going to become rich and famous. And he couldn't accomplish with that what a pair of brothers with no college education, no funding, the people that they're working with in their bicycle shop had no high school education, and they create the first airplane. Why? Capacity versus calling. Sam had the capacity. He didn't have the passion or the calling. It didn't consume him from the inside out like it did the Wright brothers. He was doing it for the money and the fame. He writes about it. Uh, We read later that when the Wright brothers took their first flight and Langley found out about it, he quit. He didn't say, man, I'm going to take everything that they have learned and I'm going to apply it to my model and I'm going to make it way better. He stopped. Why? Capacity versus call. He was doing it because he was capable. He didn't have the calling. Let me ask you, do you know what that one thing is for you? Do you know what drives you to get out of bed in the mornings? Do you have something that motivates you? I can tell you what it is for me to help you discover how God has wired and shaped you. What drives me every single day is to connect you to God's purpose. The whole reason we started this church is because I believe you matter to God and He wants you living a fulfilled life, doing something that you were created to do that makes a difference in other people's life. I feel like my job is to provide you opportunities to do that. Maybe the most helpful example comes later in your Bible, in the New Testament. If you uh, brought a Bible, I would encourage you to grab it and meet me in John chapter 20. I feel like God brought somebody in church just to see what is about to be tied together here for you. In John chapter 20, we have recorded for us eyewitness accounts of when Jesus rose from the dead. Regardless of where you land on all that, uh, don't worry about that, but that's how this passage starts. It says in verse 19, that Sunday evening, the evening Jesus rose from the dead, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders because they just killed Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So you can see Jesus commissions his disciples here to go out into the world, to send them as, as Jesus was sent. He's so he's sending. They receive the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. Drop down to verse uh, chapter 21. Okay, just a few verses later. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the other two disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out into the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Why? Because they had the capacity for fishing. They had the calling to change the world. But Jesus just said, I'm sending you as I was sent, so I'm sending you. Here's my point. How different would the world look if the disciples stayed in their capacity? How different would the world look if Moses stayed in his capacity as a shepherd? Not the the proverbial savior of 
the the Jews. So so here's what I think God's trying to do. How different would the world look if you stayed in your capacity? This is what I'm trying to teach you. You'll always default back to what you know. The guys knew fishing. So when they were pressed, when they weren't sure what to do, when they were scared, they defaulted to what they know. You will too. That's why so many people get stuck between promises. People say, I'll just keep keep at it. Keeping this job. Keep going to school. Do another load of laundry for these kids. Once Jesus shows up, he's going to tell me what to do. Now, now here's why this is a really big deal. So important that you get this. Jesus met them there. You tracking with that? They were in their capacity before God reveals their calling. In other words, if you're confused about your calling, have you started within your capacity? That's what Jesus asks you to do. This is so huge because this promise is a promise about discovery. It's about figuring out why God has made you. I heard the greatest day of a person's life is the day you're born. The second greatest day of your life is the day you figure out why. This is what we're driven by here at this church. Most people don't ever think to look for their why in what they're already doing. Most people aren't willing just to try things out. They're waiting for God. Meanwhile, God's waiting for them to start the process because God doesn't steer a parked car. Come on, somebody. So you got to start going, and then he'll meet you there. So in light of that, what we've done is design our church around giving you opportunities to try things out within your capacity. Because you're a tent in some area. Sometimes you just got to try a bunch of things to figure out what that area is. And so when you hear us talk about next, this little series of of classes that we want you to go through is to help you discern your calling. We don't ask you to serve because we need something from you. We ask you to serve because that's what God asks you to do. He sends you out to make a difference. We need, God wants something for you. He's for you as his people. Many will see and be amazed, Psalm 40, when you start living out your calling. You know how many people are amazed when I tell them I'm a pastor? Literally every single one. I've never met somebody where they were like, oh yeah, I totally saw that. No, never met that person in my entire life. That's why we, and we'll talk about this next week, that's why we talk about the happiest people on the planet are those who are serving God and making a difference. It's promise four. Cup of fulfillment, cup of praise. I'm going to know your God because of how you created me and wired me and shaped me. That's what's at stake for you. And so let me make this as clear as possible. Because in John chapter 20, the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what it says? Jesus breathes on them and receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know your Bible, explain to me what happens in Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, you read about how the disciples are in an upper room, locked, waiting for this Holy Spirit to show up. And then they hear the sound, this rushing, tongues fall down like fire. And then all of a sudden, they get the power of the Holy Spirit. They start preaching. I'll explain to you what I think is happening. It ties directly back to our four promises. In promise number one, Jesus rescues you from slavery. He breathes the Holy Spirit on you, and you uh, are forgiven of your sin. All of your sin. Past, present, and future. Then promise number two, the Holy Spirit compels you to live differently. He gives you the desire, and He gives you 
the power. And promise three, with an outstretched arm, God redeems you back to your original purpose. With mighty acts, you are now living out your calling. So what's happening between these two texts, John chapter 20 and Acts chapter 2, is when you're stuck between promises, you've received the Holy Spirit and you've never harnessed His power. You can live in complete submission to God and never fully understand the power that's at your disposal. Maybe this will help because you guys weren't as excited about that as I was. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, guy named Paul living out his calling, uh, living out how God's created him. He said, go start these churches, uh, write letters to them. He writes this one letter to the uh, the church at Thessalonica. For we wanted to come to you Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. That's what you need to be aware of when it comes to your calling and when it comes to the power that you can harness is that your enemy is going to put things in your way, but he can never touch you. He he can provide some distractions. When you don't understand the power at your disposal, your blocked way will cause you to look for a detour. It'll cause you to go off course. The, the words blocked our way there in the original Greek, it literally means to dig a ditch. That Satan, when he shows up and he sees your calling over here and you're trying to fulfill it, he gets in your way, he digs a ditch, and the vast majority of people try and look for a way around the ditch. And in turn, they find themselves off way in the distance. They're like, how do I even get over here? Because you're not understanding the power that God has put at your disposal. With that in mind... Let me direct your attention to Romans 11, 29. For the gifts of God and the calling of God is irrevocable. I guess I can preach to these three people that said amen to that. Irrevocable. The calling of God on your life cannot be revoked. God's got something for you. There's a ditch in your way, but you have the power to go through the ditch. Yet, the bad news, your calling can't be revoked, can't be ignored, it can be left undiscovered. And so as we wrap up this time this morning, what I need you to hear me say is that this promise number three, to redeem, it's really a discovery process. And I want to help you do that. The first way is simply go through next. But in the meantime, before you get there, you should really just start trying things out based on your capacity. Do you have the capacity to plug in a microphone? Yeah, you do. You have the capacity to set up a chair? Yeah, you do. You have the capacity to set up a light? You have the capacity to push a button on a keyboard? You have the capacity to pray over a child? You have the capacity to serve them a snack? Yeah. Do you have the capacity to get up early and stay late? Ooh, Pastor, that's where you lost me. I know. That's why we have like four people on our production team who are here every single week. Think about that. Every Sunday, first one here, last one to leave, 52 times a year. They're here more than I am. Plugging things in making sure everything gets set up correctly. You don't think that gets old? Every weekend? 
even though they're living their calling? Of course it does. But because they do what they do, we get cards like this. New Anthem Church has given me hope and a sense of belonging. When I was at my low point in life, gave me hope. Thanks for everything. You tell me a 6 a.m. wake-up call isn't worth that? Somebody's life? Somebody's hope? You tell me putting words on the screen doesn't matter to the 91 people who have made decisions to follow Christ since we've launched this church? You tell me what you do doesn't matter? You want to discover your calling? Start in your capacity. God's going to meet you there. Sometimes he'll be on the shore and and call you in and say, hey, you don't have to fish out there anymore. I'm going to call you to be a fisher of men. And other times he's going to say, no, you need to stay out there and keep fishing and keep doing what you're doing. I created you for physical labor. Just do what I'm asking you to do. And the result of that is fulfillment, which we'll talk about next week. And if you want to be fulfilled, you have to come back to hear promise number four. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for this gift that you've given us of a calling and a purpose on our lives. God, you saw a job, you created a person, and we want to live out that calling. God, I'm praying that you implore these people here within the sound of my voice, watching online, on podcasts, whatever it is, to help them figure out, to start this discovery process of why you've created them that their capacity is different than their calling. Sometimes they need to start in their capacity to discern their calling, but in the meantime, help encourage them and strengthen them to realize that what they're doing is making an eternal difference. As we pray and as you kind of reflect on that idea of of not being stuck in between promises, that God's given you passions Why would you not use that for his purpose? I want you to really try and answer that in your mind. But in the meantime, some of you haven't even got through promise one yet. I want to make sure you leave here knowing that God has unshackled you from the slavery of sin, that he's rescued you, has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus Christ. That all you have to do is believe. And you can just, in your heart, say, I believe that Jesus saves me because he died on a cross and rose from the dead. God, help me live promise number two where you get this sin out of my life. Let me see promises three and four. God, this is our prayer that we live fulfilled lives. This is what you want from us. Life to the full. Encourage us, strengthen us. Help us leave here one step closer to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.